dear friends, families, and dear people of Ireland. I was eight years old the first time I came here and 15 years old when my mother was brutally killed. My mother Sophie is not a ghost. She is a victim of human cruelty and violence, of a man who lives among you. In few days' time, the trial will begin at last. A lot has happened since the French charged Ian Bailey with the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier back in 2016. The French tried to extradite Ian, but they were blocked by Ireland. Ian contested the charge, but France denied his appeals. And so a date was set for an unusual trial. An Englishman on trial in a French court for a murder committed in Ireland. We went to Paris for the trial in May of 2019, and lots was different about it. Evidence that you wouldn't have heard in Ireland, arguments that weren't made in France. But it was strange in one respect most of all. At every other point in this 25-year saga, Ian Bailey has loomed large. But this trial wasn't like that, because Ian Bailey wasn't there. And so, while Ian's fate hung in the balance, the focus shifted to Sophie, this woman, so often in the shadow of her own story. To us, that week was about her. Sophie Toscan de Plantier came late to her career as a documentary maker, but she was full of ideas for films about art and philosophy. Her final project was a film called He Sees Folds Everywhere. A fold as in a fold of a napkin or a piece of paper. Sophie never got to finish the project herself. Editing was yet to begin when she flew to Cork that Christmas of 1996. But her director, Guy Girard, did finish it and released it a year after her death. I recently tracked down a copy. In the opening scenes, the director is walking the streets of Paris, wearing black, smoking. So far, so French. But he's playing with an origami fortune teller. Kids sometimes call them cootie catchers or a chatterbox, a game with directions or fortunes hidden under the different folds. Each time Guy Girard unfolds a corner, it sends him off to explore the fold in a new and surprising way. He meets a brain surgeon, a performance artist, the fashion designer Issy Miyake. He's saying that if you look in the right way, folds are all around us. He reads from the work of an abstract philosopher, explaining how folds shape our very existence, unfolding in the embryo and shriveling up in death. Through an endless procession of examples, Guy is trying to animate an intangible idea. And as I sit here watching the film on my laptop during lockdown, it reminds me of a day I spent in Paris with a guy called Fred. Can you say something to so Hello, hello. C'est bon? C'est bon? C'est bon, c'est parfait. I'm Sam Bungie. I'm Jennifer Ford, and this is He Sees Sophie Everywhere. Introduce yourself, say your name. Ah, OK, OK. I'm Frédéric Gazo, and I'm uh, Sophie's cousin. And, uh, and that's all. <laughs> Je sais pas. It's a Sunday. Fred and I are in a busy cafe in central Paris, the morning before Sophie's murder trial. Strange that I chose this place to talk with you because um, I didn't realize uh, I come here and say, ah, yes, this is a place where I, I learned that my cousin was dead, yes. He says that this is the cafe he was in when he heard about Sophie's murder. Fred was a student then. He was just hanging out reading a football magazine when he started getting messages through on his pager, messages saying things like, Fred, I'm so sorry for your loss. It was very uh, stressful moment because... Uh, I know that somebody was dead and I don't know who. He went looking for a place to make a call. He remembered there was a payphone in the basement of this cafe. I phoned to my friend. And, in this cafe? In yeah. this cafe, yes. My, my friend said, oh, no, I, I, I don't want to say this to you. I don't want to say, what to say. I said, come on, come on, say me. What, what, what happened? And at this moment, I was uh, thinking it was my, uh, my mother or my father. And she said, no, it's your cousin. I said, what? My, my cousin, uh, Sophie? And she says, yes, she's dead. And I say, uh, how, how? And she said, she, she has been murdered. Fred has an official role to play at the trial this week. 
In France, as part of a murder trial, the court hears from personality witnesses who will talk about the victim. The thinking is that to understand the crime, you first have to understand who was lost. As a kid, Fred was starry-eyed about his older cousin. I was very um, amazed by her. I was very proud to have a cousin like her. She has a lot of energy. When she came in a room, there was electricity in the air. She looks at you and you, you feel that you exist. We wander out of the cafe into the first district of Paris, where Sophie spent most of her life. Fred has chosen this place to organize his thoughts for the trial, and I'm tagging along. We're going to the Sophie's place now, near Rambuteau. Sophie was 15 years older than Fred, and she was the eldest of the cousins. We have to walk uh, five minutes. It's something Fred returns to often. She occupied that place that the eldest in a group of young relatives often does, the smart, thoughtful, cool one. You see, there is a window. We're outside a modern apartment building where Sophie lived with her young son Pierre-Louis after she divorced her first husband. Uh, Pierre-Louis room and the other one was the Sophie room. Fred often came by to babysit Pierre-Louis here. And it was very, very simple. Like uh, her character, you know, only one coach and uh, her desk for writing. Fred's sifting through detail after detail about Sophie's life. That she read gothic novels, that she couldn't hold a tune but loved to sing about the time she confronted the homeless guy she realized had been sleeping in her car. She says, come on, you can sleep in my car, but in the morning, you have to, to clean up. What? <laughs> she, she, she's like, that's fine. Oh yeah, that, that, that's fine, but please, clean the, in the morning. She uh, was always uh, gentle and, uh, but I'm- Fred's I, talking uh, to me, but I get the impression I mean, he's thinking camera? about the courtroom searching for the perfect detail that might explain what his cousin was really like. It's amazing what you remember, though. You remember so I mean, I, I remember a lot of things, you know? I, I can speak for hours. <laughs> Fred feels a certain pressure speaking about Sophie in front of her family, the pressure to sum up a person who meant different things to different people. But Sophie and Fred really bonded over their love of culture. She inspired him to become a documentary screenwriter himself. In court, he's going to focus on what he knows best. So you want you want to like give a portrait of her, but by talking about her taste in music yes, and poetry and theatre, yes. it's very important. Sophie wanted to make documentaries about African art and Greek dance. For a project about the old belief in the four humours of the body, she had Fred read up in medical texts while she spent hours in a museum filled with gruesome specimens and preserving jars. She was always interested by by the thing, but she was uh, a little bit afraid. But she wants to to see. But she was afraid. She was like, like a, ch a child. A child, you know, you, you see the monster, or you see the wave. You want to to, uh, to approach, but when the wave comes to you, you run in the other way. She was like this. For her documentary on the fold, Sophie and her director Guy Girard would meet to share their research. Guy told Sophie a story about a man who'd murdered his wife and told police that things had taken a mauvais plea, like a bad turn. The literal translation is a bad fold. Sophie told Guy that if they were going to pursue violence as a theme, they should make sure to speak to a particular writer she knew in Ireland, and she mentioned the man's name. They never did interview him. Shortly after this conversation, Sophie flew alone to Ireland that week before Christmas. But when Guy read Ian Bailey's name in the paper in connection to Sophie's murder, he was sure that that was the writer she talked about that day in the office. He even got on a plane to Ireland to meet with a detective. But by that time, more than two years had passed, who could be sure his memory hadn't been coloured by all the media coverage of the case? Sophie hadn't wanted to go alone to West Cork that weekend. It's something that many in the family have struggled with over the years. She asked lots of friends and family to come with her, but no one could. Fred got a call from Sophie that he never got round to returning. She has sent to my cousin a fax to, to ask her, come with me, please come with me. I don't know why she, she goes... Uh, in Ireland, if she, she doesn't want to go uh, alone and maybe she was afraid of something, I don't know. The trial this week probably wouldn't be happening without Fred's father, Sophie's uncle, Jean-Pierre. 
He started a pressure group pushing for an investigation in France when it seemed Sophie's case had been all but forgotten. But now faced with the reality of a trial, Fred is thinking of Sophie's elderly parents. There is a lot of tension, you know. They are w waiting for th this moment, but uh, I, I think very uh, terrible things w will be uh, uh, revealed during the trial, you know. The autopsy, a lot of things, and um, I'm uh, worried. I don't know how they deal with it. It's well into the evening by the time Fred and I finally part ways. So now I am going to, to sleep, to be, uh, to be with my children for, for, for the next hours, and tomorrow it would be uh, very stressful, you know. I know Fred feels anxious not to let anyone down this week, most especially Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis. The week before the trial, Pierre-Louis had travelled to West Cork to stand before the congregation at Sunday Mass. Dear friends, families, and dear people of Ireland, I have been coming to Ireland for 30 years now. I was eight years old the first time I came here, and 15 years old when my mother was brutally killed. Pierre-Louis has come to this church in the village of Goline to make a direct plea. My mother, Sophie, is not a ghost. She is a victim of human cruelty and violence, which has no place here. Because humans are sometimes capable of the worst, this man was capable of the worst. Because my mother defended herself from the worst up to her last breath to escape the savage and brutal violence of a man who lives among you. Pierre-Louis didn't say the name of the man accused of killing his mother, but everyone knew who he was talking about. Ian Bailey's lawyer, Frank Buttermer, would later blame the church for allowing his client to be read from the pulpit, he said. Like back in the days when priests would shame people during mass. You know as well as I know who killed my mother. In few days' time, the trial will begin at last. That weekend, people across West Cork were receiving summons letters from France. The French can't force witnesses to come to this trial. They don't have that power. But the letters explained that the court would reimburse them for expenses. They just had to get themselves to Paris. And Pierre-Louis was in church that day to strengthen the appeal. It is time today to turn one of the saddest pages of your history, the darkest page of mine. Don't betray me. Don't betray yourself. It's Monday morning, three hours before the trial starts, and something that for so long has just seemed like a wild idea is really about to happen. Ian Bailey is about to go on trial for murder, but Ian Bailey isn't coming. Can we record this? The foreign press are gathered by a cafe opposite the courthouse, debating the whole idea of a trial in absentia. The thing you've got to take on board, uh, most people in Ireland are a bit blind to this. That's Michael Sheridan. He's written two books on the case. That it's his decision not to defend himself. You cannot blame the French authorities for legislation allowing for in absentia. It was his decision. The French would like to have him here, very much so. There is something kind of fascinating about a system that would allow the victim a day in court regardless of whether the suspect shows up. Under the common law system, which is what's used in Ireland and lots of other places like the UK and the US, holding a trial without a defendant present would be considered a violation of that person's right to a fair hearing, which is all about two sides duking it out. But that's not going to happen here this week. Not only is Ian not coming, nor are his lawyers. So a murder trial without a defendant present and without a defence. Mick Clifford from the Irish Examiner jumps into the argument. The point, Michael, about our system is based not on someone having to 
defend an innocence. The point that the system is based on having to prove somebody's guilt. It's nearly turned on its head. He says constantly in newspaper interviews uh, over recent times that he's an innocent man. Now, why isn't he coming? Why isn't his lawyer defending? Well, I, I, I haven't a clue, but certainly if I was in his shoes, mm. on the basis of the way I've seen progress through the French system, I'd be very slow to come myself. Instead this week, Ian's at home in his new writing shed composing poems. The French are preparing a bonfire on a bed of lies, he says. Better they burn an effigy. But putting Ian Bailey on trial without Ian Bailey is something that his lawyer Frank Buttimer has described as Hamlet without the prince. It's a saying that supposedly refers back to the summer of 1775, when a theatre company was putting on a production of Hamlet above a pub in London's West End. One night, the actor playing the hero absconded with the innkeeper's daughter, but the tickets were sold, the other thespians all in place. So one of the troupe went out before the curtain call to warm up the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, he announced, the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, with the part of Hamlet left out for the night. A lot of modern courthouses can be fairly functional looking, slabs of concrete with low ceilings and strip lighting. The Palais de Justice is not that kind of place. This building has been a symbol of French justice for nearly 800 years. It's where Marie Antoinette was imprisoned awaiting the guillotine. We clear security, walk along a marble hallway and up a worn stone staircase to the Victor Hugo court. Outside are two armed policemen and a sign saying Bailey trial. The trial in absentia is like a stepping stone. If Ian is convicted, the French will try to bring him to France to face a new trial in person. But inside the courtroom, it doesn't feel like anyone thinks this is just a dress rehearsal. The lead lawyer for the prosecution is Marie Dose. She's stylish and has a high profile here in Paris. She cracks a can of Perrier and begins laying out weighty files. 17 separate folders. They'll be stacked here all week, perhaps as a physical reminder of the heft of their case against Ian. Sophie's family and friends occupy the benches behind the legal team and even spill over onto the other side of the central aisle where Ian's lawyers would, had they come, be laying out files of their own. The dock, where Ian would be sitting under police guard, is empty. A little after 2 p.m., the presiding judge, Judge Frederic Aline, enters the court and with a glance over at the dock, she asks, is Ian Bailey in the room? Silence. Judge Aline says, we consider that Ian Bailey is absent without a valid excuse. And so the trial begins. The judge reads out a roll call of witnesses who've been asked but not ordered to attend. And it's here where the challenges of the trial begin to sink in. Different languages, different jurisdictions, the corroding passage of 23 years. I think the way they've handled the witnesses has been quite sloppy. That's Lara Marlowe from the Irish Times. As far as I can tell, they just sent summonses to whatever old address was somewhere in the file. And more than half of them came back saying no reply or unknown at this address or um, person unknown. The list even included Martin Graham, the Garda informant who sadly died just a couple of months before the trial. Another witness called had died a few years earlier. If they really wanted people to come and testify, they needed to have someone in charge of it. Perhaps the biggest name on this list is Marie Farrell, the witness who said she saw Ian near the crime scene on the night of the murder and then changed her story. We contacted Marie a week or so before the trial she told us she never had any intention of going to Paris. Back in court, the first person to testify is an expert witness who talks about Sophie. Occasionally he speaks directly to the case, but overall it seems more about opening with a portrait of the victim. We move on to photos of the crime scene, at which point most of Sophie's family step outside. The photos are presented here to court by a fast-talking French detective. He's the first of two French detectives who will testify today. Both were part of a team assigned to the case back in 2008, when France launched its own investigation. They travelled to Cork multiple times to meet Irish detectives and re-interview witnesses. 
Though they did their own police work, most of what they're presenting here is directly from the Irish Guard of File. When it comes to the crime scene photos, the French detective isn't always sure what he's looking at. The prosecution lawyers step forward to help clarify a few points. Judge Aline is understanding. I realise these aren't your photos, she says. But by midway through the second detective, it's pretty clear the French aren't just going through the motions here. He and his partner have been on their feet testifying for hours. By the time the courtroom empties out, it's past 11 o'clock at night, and the rest of the Palais de Justice is deserted. The trial will resume at 9.30 tomorrow morning. There is a schedule. They're telling Bill Fuller and Mike Shaw. I'm in the read. But it all hinges on who turns up. Jesus Christ, <laughs> long day. Anyway, okay, see, see you, you later. Tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thanks. Take care. By late morning on day two, word had gone around that of the West Court witnesses called, just two have made it to Paris. They're about to meet the court translator. My name is, I'll do the short version because I have an extra long African name. So my name is Eunice Kunu, and uh, I've been working as a translator for 17 years. Eunice likes to meet witnesses before they come into the courtroom. Because usually they're very nervous. They, they're in a foreign country. They don't speak the language. They, they're terrified. And so I explain what's going to happen once they enter the room so that they're prepared. First up is Irene Reed. Irene is here to testify on behalf of her son, Malachi. Remember, Malachi got a lift home from Skull with Ian Bailey one evening and Ian told him that things hadn't been going well for him since he went up there and bashed that woman's brains in with a rock, or words to that effect. Ian doesn't deny saying something like that, he just says it was a dark joke. Malachi was just 14 back then and doesn't want anything to do with the case anymore. So his mum has come instead. Obviously their system's very different. AP journalist Tessa Lemaire is new to this case but has covered legal proceedings for years in the UK. She's not used to hearing evidence second-hand like this, especially not without some healthy cross-examination. When he's saying, oh, the Garda took me to one side, and this interview with the, the Garda that he had before he told his mother about what had happened, how did they know that he'd got in Bailey's car? How did, how did they know all of this? And that just didn't seem... That wasn't picked apart at all. In fact, a detective had got word that Ian had driven Malachi home that night, so the detective went to see Malachi the following day in school. But Tess has concerns about that too, about the way this evidence was gathered. Why were they talking to a 14-year-old? Where were they talking to him? And she, the mother clearly knew this story very well, so they might have been questions she could have answered. The second witness, Billy Fuller, is here to testify, among other things, about a strange encounter he says he had with Ian Bailey before his first arrest. If you don't remember, he says that he and Ian were having a few drinks one evening when Ian accused Billy of killing Sophie. The accusation had a lot of detail that made Billy feel that Ian had incriminated himself. When he came out of court, Billy repeated his testimony for reporters on the stairway. He said that you went up there to see what you could get. Uh, you frightened her, she ran away screaming. So you chased her to calm her down, realised you uh, stoked something in the back of her head, realised you went too far and had to finish her off. That's what he said to me yeah. through himself. I think it was a confession, just way of, some way of saying it, you know? This is just one of the many claims Billy Fuller has made about Ian to the guards. One other story was that he saw Ian trying to dispose of a big stick down near the beach one day. This claim was disproved by the guards themselves, who established that Billy had actually seen a local farmer Billy knows the guards found this, and yet he told us he still struggles to accept that he really didn't see Ian that day. The way the DPP in Ireland saw it, back then, Billy was in the grip of a community-wide hysteria about Ian that had been stirred up by the investigation. Ian would claim that you were coached into saying the scenario that he said this by the guard who spoke to you. What do you say about that? I'd say it's absolute rubbish. The guards never put fear into anybody. It was, the fear was there, like, as you... People have said to you before, the fear was already there. Guards were just helping out, reacting on that, really, you know. And why do you think there is so few Irish people because coming here? There's only given the summons eight days before the case, you know. So some people haven't got passports, they haven't... You know, I, had, I was managed to get a loan to do this. Yeah, it took a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of stress, and but it's worth it for me because I've been gone for 22 years and I just want, I just want an end to this, you know. I want, so how just, does it feel now to have stood up in court and have said, said what you wanted to say? It's a relief. It's just on the next stage we've got to deal with now, haven't we? We've still got to live with the guy, like. <laughs> and I'm out of two people who stood here now, out of me and Irene, you know, then he knows what I've said against him now again, you know, and he's got to live around that. 
You've got to live around the ripples that causes. Eventually, Billy breaks free and flees down the stairs practically two at a time. And that's it. During Ian's civil case against the Irish state, more than 80 witnesses appeared. In a case that's rarely been out of Irish newspapers in over 20 years, this is all we're going to hear from anyone in Ireland. But uh, at least these people have saved the honour of a skull, skull village. That's Thierry Levesque, the French reporter who first began covering the case for Reuters back when the murder happened. He doesn't think much of the witnesses who hadn't given up a day or two of their time to come to Paris. Perhaps it is uh, the illustration of the island is not really comfortable with this case. <laughs> All the people know there that they have missed something. And of course it is a bit shameful to go to Paris to admit that the French are doing their job. But uh, uh, I think they should put this apart and help people here to finish with this story. One Irish witness seems to have anticipated this kind of a reaction from the French, and she is determined to shut it down. Helen Callanan has been called to testify about another of Ian's alleged confessions. She was one of the newspaper editors taking Ian's reporting on the murder investigation, and when she confronted him about being a suspect, he said he killed Sophie to resurrect his career. Another joke, Ian says. Callanan is now a prominent barrister in Dublin and she's written an email to the court, read out by the prosecutor, explaining that she can't possibly come on such short notice. If they can wait until next week, she says she can arrange to testify by video link, but the judge says the trial will be over by then. Callanan is scathing of the witness handling. She wonders why the French authorities had waited until the last minute when the facts had been known for more than two decades and worries that the lack of verbal testimony will undermine the credibility of the trial. It's not the people of West Cork that are betraying Sophie's family, she writes. It's the fragility of the process to be found in Paris. The one thing I will say, what I noticed in the last few days... This is Michael Clifford from the Irish Examiner. The place given to the victim's family in French law, I think, is very commendable. He says that one of the criticisms of the common law system is that the victim is forgotten about. It's just between the state and the suspect. In the last few days, through two witnesses in particular, we've been given a picture of a life that this woman had and the type of person she was and everything about her. So to some extent, she came alive and her life is there in the courtroom. The two witnesses Clifford is praising here are Fred, Sophie's cousin, who you heard from back at the start, and her best friend, Agnès Thomas. But when we found Fred and Agnès outside later, they were beating themselves up, convinced they'd done a terrible job. It was really hard to explain because we, the emotion was too hard. And I wanted to, to do a, a very uh, lovely testimony and explain what the, the joy, the joy Sophie was able to, you know, the joy, the energy, the, the life. She was really alive. She was a, a great girl uh, with a lot of, I mean, her, you know. So I wanted to explain this, but I was so sad that I couldn't <laughs> say a word, you know. This is this, this is she it. Five yeah. pages of notes. Yes. So she was writing in the witness yeah, uh, room. Yes, and, yes. Uh, I, prepare, I prepared uh, the, the story of Sophie, but... Impossible. It was too hard. Before they testified, Fred and Agnès were in a room together, going over what they were planning to say and trying to calm each other down. Fred says he ended up forgetting to mention members of Sophie's family in his testimony. For her part, Agnès spoke the first few lines of the speech she prepared and then just petered out. But over our time with Agnès and Fred this week, just shooting the breeze about Sophie we find they're able to recall their old friend so vividly that sometimes she seems to hang in the air with us. Really, I miss her now because I don't have any friend like this. She was calling me very often. And sometimes they say, oh, please, Sophie, don't call me. I, I, I don't have anything to say. We, call, we talk already the, yesterday and we spent two hours. It's OK, today I don't know what to say. <laughs> but, you know, she said, oh, please, and yes, we can talk of everything. She, she was loving talking, yes. yes. And, and if I don't call him back uh, so quickly, she called me, hi, Agnes, it's Sophie, please call me back. Come on, you didn't call me back. Please call me, Sophie, it's Sophie, please call me back. <laughs> she was so cute. Please, come on, Agnes, please call me, I have nothing to say. She was so funny. 
Absolutely, Sophie, yes. <laughs> so cool, so, so great. Irresistible. I don't know how to say that. Irresistible? Irresistible. Irresistible. She was really a, a so nice girl, really. And so fun and so, really, we really miss her, yeah. We lost someone, yeah. We can say that, huh? we really lost someone. Day three begins with a reading of a personality assessment of Ian Bailey, prepared by two French psychologists. They conclude that Ian is particularly complex and intelligent, but bears the traits of someone with a borderline personality. He's self-obsessed and has a tendency towards extreme violence. The psychologists looked at Garda interrogation notes and Ian's personal diaries, which feature long passages of graphic sexual fantasies and horrifying accounts of his violence against his partner Jules. In places, they seem to depict a man on the verge of some kind of breakdown. But the psychologists here didn't evaluate Ian in person. They didn't correspond with him at all. And in fact, from here on out, any testimony from people with first-hand knowledge of the accused will be delivered in written statements from the investigation file, read in by the judge herself. Names that have circled the case for years. Neighbours, guards. For Marie Farrell alone, there are hundreds of pages of statements. A lot of Marie's statements contradict one another in multiple ways, but back in the original indictment against Ian, the French prosecution made it clear that they assumed Marie was telling the truth about seeing Ian out on the road that night until Ian menaced her into changing her story. Ian contests all this, and his lawyer Frank Buttermer even says that on one date when Ian was supposed to be in West Cork harassing Marie, he was actually with Ian himself in Cork City. On and on Judge Aline goes for hours, working through a big stack of printouts. Lara Marlowe from the Irish Times finds it kind of hypnotic. It's funny because at the end of the day, one almost gets confused between the witnesses who came and the witnesses whose testimony was read aloud in court. It was more effective than I would have thought it could be. Um, the judge read them very well. In the beginning, I thought she was, she was speaking much too fast, but as it went on, uh, one was able to, you know, to take it in, and also because this story is so familiar to everyone. Some of the material that hasn't been through the mill in Ireland concerns the allegation that Ian had an existing relationship with Sophie. Remember, Sophie's cousin, Alexandra Louis, gave a statement to French police that a few days before that final trip to West Cork, Sophie got a call to her office in Paris from a man who lived near her holiday home in West Cork, he told her that he was an independent journalist and writer and was requesting a meeting for cultural reasons. According to the statement, Sophie had been surprised by the call and the fact the man wouldn't say how he got her number. The court in Paris also hears the statement of Guy Girard, Sophie's director, who remembered her talking about a writer in Ireland named Owen Bailey, Ian's pen name at the time. This chimes with something else we hear at the trial, a story Sophie's best friend, Agnès Thomas, tells about a phone call Sophie'd received shortly before her final trip from someone who was bizarre and made her feel uneasy. She'd met this man before and was now unsure about meeting him again. Agnès only recalled this several years after Sophie's murder and she couldn't remember the man's name or even whether he was meant to have been in Ireland. But she did recall that this man was a poet. As Lara Marlowe points out, it's a detail that stands out to people. Obviously one thinks of Ian Bailey... But overall, most of what's being presented here in France has been covered extensively in newspapers in Ireland over the years. Something you hear a lot about this case is that the guards messed up in those early days. It's come up here at the trial more than once. Talk of the crime scene being poorly preserved. The suggestion that the guards were simply overwhelmed by the scale of the task. Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, once complained to us that no-one from the Irish investigation bothered to interview him and spoke to him of a half-assed job. This struck us as strange too, the idea that the guards had never wanted to speak to the son of the victim, one of the few people who'd regularly been to the house with Sophie. In fact, Pierre-Louis is mistaken. The guards had wanted to speak to him, but it was complicated, in the way things have been complicated here this week. It turns out that the challenges of working across international borders have plagued this case from the start. Back in 1996, the guards weren't allowed to directly investigate in France. Instead, they would draw up a list of questions and people in France they wanted to speak to. This list would then run a gauntlet of red tape, 
And at the other end, supposedly, there would be a French police officer who would ideally work through that list. But too often, it seems, a French cop never got to such assignments. The guards put Pierre-Louis on their list, but never got a statement back. The same goes for Guy Girard, the director who worked with Sophie on her final film. Naturally, the guards had wanted to meet Sophie's husband, Daniel, in the weeks after her murder, but had to settle for a single statement taken by a Paris detective. So it feels like some of the criticism of the guards' work in those early days is a little unfair. But what seems to be missing this week at the trial is some of the criticism that's come since. Over the past decade in Ireland, there's been a public reckoning with Angarda Shekona following a run of scandals, and this case has been in the middle of that. In 2018, the body which investigates alleged Garda wrongdoing, GSOC, published a report with disturbing findings about the Sophie investigation. They found pages from the jobs books were missing, some apparently removed with a pair of scissors. Two pages are missing right after where Ian is first nominated as a suspect, and the guards are missing evidence, a lot of evidence. Five suspect files were missing, the originals of 139 statements. GSOC found 22 exhibits had either gone missing or were not held by the guards. A wine bottle recovered near Sophie's house, Ian Bailey's black coat, and the big one, the four-metre-long, blood-spattered five-bar gate taken from the crime scene. The gate in particular has captured the public imagination in Ireland. How in the world do you lose a gate? Some people began referring to the scandal as Gategate. We do know that the gate went from a West Cork store up to Garda HQ in Dublin, where tests were done on it until around mid-January of 97. In 2001, new tests were carried out on swabs from the gate. But by the time the French carried out their own tests on crime scene exhibits in 2011, there's no mention of the gate at all in their paperwork. At some point, as GSOC reported, the gate had disappeared. One of the many surprising features of this case is that there's no hard evidence. Despite the frenzied scene, it's frustrated people over the years that the only DNA ever found has been Sophie's. Except we recently learned that that's technically no longer the case. In 2011, a French forensic scientist travelled to West Cork at the invitation of Angarda Chiacorna to take fresh samples from objects recovered from the crime scene. The scientist was shown nine exhibit bags at Bantry Garda Station. As she later noted in her report, all of the bags were already opened. Anyway, she took samples back to France and ran tests. All the blood tests showed only a female DNA profile, just as all the other UK and Irish tests had done over the years. But on a single sample, a swab of a whitish trace near the laces on Sophie's left boot, they found something else, the DNA profile of an unknown male. We took the paperwork on these results to independent experts. They told us that this was the result of a contact trace sample taken to detect DNA from skin cells, sweat, or any other secretions. They stressed that this is just a single sample from among many, and there are plenty of reasons it may have no evidential value in Sophie's case. It might have already been on the boot prior to the attack, or it might be the result of contamination after the fact. Eugene Gilligan, the retired Scenes of Crimes detective who worked on this case, remarked to us that it was a strange place for male DNA to be found. He speculated that it could have wound up there during the post-mortem when the boot was pulled off. Jim Donovan, the former head of Ireland's Forensic Science Lab, mused that saliva from a loud talker might have landed on the boot and survived for months or even years. What we couldn't establish is exactly what, if any, official work was done to find out whose DNA this is. Did anyone compare the profile to those of the officers and experts who'd been at the scene? Or to other suspects? Did they run it through Interpol? Were any additional tests done on the boot? We've reached out to people in France and Ireland, from senior investigators to forensic officers, and they've declined to tell us either way. We assume they have Ian Bailey's DNA on file and have established it doesn't match, but they won't even tell us that. The French file has no explanation for the DNA, and the French are apparently famed for their fastidious paperwork. If any record exists in Ireland about follow-up investigation, it wasn't captured by discovery in Ian's civil suit in 2014. It may have been done since. The point is, there's been 25 years of seeking answers in Sophie's murder, and it seems a little late in the game, with missing gates and trials in absentia, to be keeping secrets. Again, this isn't necessarily some forensic bombshell, but since no one will answer our question, we're asking it here. Did anyone check? Had a defence been here at the trial this week, this is one of the many questions that might have been asked. But Ian's legal team haven't stepped foot in this courtroom all week. 
Today, though, they did send a letter. Dominic Trico has been Ian Bailey's legal representative in France since the first European arrest warrant was issued back in 2010. You might remember that one of the first phone calls Ian made when he found out about the French charge was to Trico. He couldn't reach him at the time as Trico was on a yacht off the coast of Italy, which is where he is this week. But though he's boycotted the trial, we noticed that a guy from Trico's office is in the viewing gallery. It turns out that Trico is being kept abreast of events at the Palais de Justice, and he's written to the court to add to the chorus of criticism about the lack of witnesses. This is just his latest attempt to influence proceedings from outside the courtroom. To explain, we have to go back to last Wednesday, five days before the trial started. Around 30 journalists have assembled in Dominique Trico's office, and the event is being recorded for French TV and radio news. Trico denounces the upcoming proceedings as the trial of a banana republic and claims the whole thing has been organized by the state as a gift to the victim's family. He spends time picking holes in the case against Ian and even starts putting forward alternative scenarios for what might have occurred in the crime. Trico spoke only in French at the conference, so I sat down with him afterwards. I asked him what the purpose of the press conference had been. Trico said he wanted to let the court know on the record that he thought they were making a mistake. He says the symbol of showing up in his lawyer's outfit would give credence to the proceedings. I don't want that a black robe worn by Trico shows that the trial is an independent trial. Trico told me that he thought the judges were intelligent people and would understand that as Ian Bailey's defense lawyer, not showing up was really his only move. I asked him whether he thought that made Ian look guilty, and he said he'd put the scenario to the journalist at the press conference. It's not a question of guilt or innocence. It's a question of chance. That was my question to the journalist uh, yesterday. You are innocent. You have been said innocent in France. Uh, there was a new case in Ireland. Do you go? You are innocent, but do take the risk of getting 30 years. Trico asked any journalist in the room who thought they'd risk going to a trial in this scenario to raise their hand. No, nobody did it. When we spoke to the prosecution lawyer, Mary Dose, about this press conference, she dismissed the whole event as a desperate publicity stunt, a circus number. She had great respect for Trico, she said, but by sounding off at a press conference, instead of making his case in court, he turned himself into a clown. Back in court, Trico's letter is read in, but by the end of the day, no one is talking about anything much other than the prosecution lawyer, Mary Dose's thunderous performance when she delivers her final pleading. Dose later told us that while researching this case, she travelled to West Cork and stayed at Sophie's house. She even slept in her bed. She wanted to fully immerse herself. In court, Dose speaks passionately, without notes, roaming the courtroom, banging on the bench where Ian's lawyers should have been, berating them for their absence. She lays out her vision for the night of the murder. Ian drinks and drinks and drinks more. On the way home, he stops at the lookout point. He has a direct view of Sophie's house. He knows she's alone. It's emphatic and theatrical, and there's no one here to undercut any of it. To point out that, starting with the claim he even knew the victim, Ian has denied every part of this story. Sophie's cousin Fred says that the family found it all overwhelming. Afterwards, they all just scattered out into the city. It's the first time you... You hear the story of, of this case with uh, someone who, you know, uh, Marie Dose, she, uh, she put all her, all her art in, uh, in, the, in her pleading. And uh, we were there during the night of the murder, you know, like in a book or in a novel, you know. Just, it was incredible, incredible. Marie Dose had ended her pleading with a reference to Fred's testimony. Fred had spoken of the responsibility Sophie had felt for the younger members of the family like him because she was the eldest. When I speak in front of the court, I focus my speech on the fact that um, Sophie was uh, the oldest of our generation of cousins. I didn't know what it means really, but the, the lawyer, Marie Dose, understand what I was saying better than me. And uh, when I speak, I say Sophie was the first one to be married, the first one to have a child, Pierre-Louis, the first one who divorced. And I didn't finish my sentence. And when Marie-Dose made her pleading, 
she, she uh, finished with this, this sentence. She said she was the first one, first, and she said the last sentence was, Sophie was the first one to die. It was very dramatic, your story. But it is dramatic, but it is dramatic, and it's not a story. I'm speaking to Mary Doze, standing on the courthouse steps. So I have to speak about this horrible story and what happened exactly, minute, four minute, four minute, four minute. I mean, we know exactly what happened. It's in the case. It's in the witnesses. Uh, we know what happened. So I just work this case and I didn't lie. She says, I just worked the case and I didn't lie. But could the same be said for everyone who'd ever given a statement about this case to the guards? Statements which had then been handed to the French and led to this point. Frank Buttermer told us that if he ever did defend Ian Bailey in a criminal court, he listened to the guard at evidence and then he wiped the floor with it. Even this week, during the trial in Paris, the prosecution and their expert witnesses have been fairly withering of the original Irish investigation. I asked Mary Doze about it. There's been criticism this week of the Irish police and their investigation, but you felt that the material from that investigation was enough for you? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, and Jan Belay knows it. That's why he's not here. And his lawyer knows it. That's why he's not here. The next day is a public holiday. When court reconvenes on Friday morning, the trial is essentially over. There's just the public prosecutor's final address. He says the evidence against Ian Bailey is overwhelming. Gesturing to the empty dock, he says that Ian's lawyers had mocked and insulted the court with their unbearable contempt for French justice. And he's scathing of the DPP in Ireland. He says the DPP had systematically invalidated the individual pieces of evidence and had missed the bigger picture. He tells the judges that if in their hearts they believe Ian Bailey to be guilty, they should give him the maximum 30 years. I want to see Ian Bailey here, the prosecutor says. I want to hear his defense. I want to hear and be able to condemn him face to face. The judges retire to deliberate. It takes them five hours. At 5.02 p.m., Judge Frederic Aline announces her verdict. The moment Pierre-Louis escapes the court, he's flooded by reporters. Uh, so um, today it's a, it's a victory for us. The judgment is very clear. With all the element of proof, Jan Bailey is a murderer and he killed my mother 22 years ago. So it's a victory for the justice, it's a victory for the truth, and now Ireland will have to extradite Jan Bailey and we will put all the pressure everywhere to get the justice done. But today, everybody must know, understand that Jan Bailey is a murderer and we must denounce it. There's never been any basis for people to say anything like this in Ireland, anything definitive about this case at all. The truth is that the case against Ian has never been tested in a criminal court in a way that many of us would recognize, and it's increasingly likely that it never will. Ian learned the result by phone from a journalist that evening. It came as no surprise. This was a week with much drama, but little suspense. A year from now, Irish authorities will once again block France's request to extradite Ian Bailey. The family will begin to mount an appeal with the European Court of Justice, but things will be moving especially slow with that during the pandemic. In the meantime, we have a reality that a member of Ian's legal team predicted years ago, guilty in France and innocent in Ireland. It's an outcome Ian Bailey appears resigned to, but one that Sophie's family cannot accept.
That evening in Paris, the family gather in an old restaurant. Sophie's aunt, Marie-Madeleine, is hosting the evening and invites us along. It's a muted celebration, but there's a quiet energy in the room. You sense they're feeling the flush of having come through something together for Sophie, to have collectively done something palpable. There has been media coverage here in France of the trial, but in a few weeks it will inevitably fade from the headlines as the news cycle moves on from this distant and intractable case. But we noticed more Irish journalists in the Paris court this week than French. There was even one guy, a retired doctor, who came over from Cork to follow proceedings. Because in Ireland, the story is different. When I go to West Cork, I found some things that I didn't know. Sophie's cousin Fred was there that evening. He never went to Ireland with Sophie, but he told us about a trip he made after she died. We go in a pub to, to drink a beer, and uh, we were speaking in French. People in the pub come to see us. You are French. You're coming for, 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 for Sophie. Uh, it's not Sophie Toscan du Plantier. It's not uh, the woman of a producer. It's not the victim. But it, it's uh, Sophie. You feel that Sophie now is, is a part of, uh, of uh, the, 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 the land. I don't know. A part of her is there. She, she has left a, um, a traces. Well, she's alive somewhere, you know. Sophie's documentary on the fold features an artist named Elga Heinsen who's produced dozens of paintings of clothing hung on hooks. She thinks of folds as living organisms. She's fascinated by the idea that whoever wore the clothes had left something of themselves behind in the creases. On the back of the kitchen door of Sophie's house in West Cork, where her son Pierre-Louis now holidays, new items have piled up over the years. Aprons, children's jackets, umbrellas. But Sophie's coat has been deliberately left, folds and all, hanging underneath. This episode was produced and hosted by Jennifer Ford and myself. Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. Our editor is Mike Olive. Sound design and mixing by Peregrine Andrews of Moving Air. All music for this episode is by Wes Swing. Additional music help from Kelly Libby. Legal help from Simon McAleese solicitors. Thanks to Jen Dollard, Paddy Mulcrone, Eric Eklov, Philip Boucher-Hayes, Barry Roach, and Frank Cottrell-Boyson family, especially Benedict. Special thanks to Gabby Hornsby and Audible. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.